So what was the problem with this king, this fictional uh, character? He's very much like Solomon, actually. Um, If you're interested in that uh, story, you could read that too. But he was, humanly speaking, omnipotent, all-knowing. His authority and representation throughout his kingdom was omnipresent, practically. He was sovereign and ultimately wise. He was good. He was loving, just, and gracious, and he was near to his people. So what was his problem? Beyond that of the fact that he was a creature, he's a person, a human, his main problem is that he changed, or rather that he was changed. Our God is not like this king. Our God is unchangeable, an attribute known as immutability. It means he's not mutable, he cannot change. And not only does he not change, but he can't change. Unchangeableness or immutability is part of his nature. It's part of what it means to be a capital G God. If he weren't, he wouldn't be able to be a capital G God. So immutability or unchangeability in this sense doesn't mean that God is static, like he's frozen in time or something like that. Like he's a... uh, like. Han Solo from the original Star Wars trilogy just frozen into the block of whatever it is, carbon something. Uh, he's not stuck. He's active. R.C. Sproul writes, Immutable means not that God is immobile, inert, or incapable of motion, but that his being never suffers mutations. He is omniscient and all-knowing, But his attributes never cease or change. Thus, that's the end of the quote. Thus we can define immutability this way. Borrowing from Knowing God by J.I. Packer, a book that y'all should read. It's very, very good. God cannot change in his life. God cannot change in his character. God cannot change in his truth. He cannot change in his purposes and ways. And he can also not change in his son or his trinity. Put another way, more philosophical way, God cannot become less perfect than he is right now because then he would no longer be perfect. God can also not become more perfect than he is right now because that would mean that in the past he wasn't perfect and God cannot move horizontally among different perfections, because his perfection is as a whole God. If you were to add perfections or drop perfections, when he adds one, it would be adding something to his uh, perfectness, which would be akin to him not having been perfect prior. Or if he drops one, it's essentially like him becoming less perfect. He is a unity. So, regardless, if God changes, you have run into the issue of him becoming less or more perfect, which indicates that at some point, he wasn't perfect. So, firstly, God is unchangeable in his life. So, if you were here the first week, which few of you weren't, uh, Luke spoke about God's self-existence, also known as his aseity or aseity. He was not made... And no person of the Trinity was made, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. So we did that survey last week, 
And uh, there's all sorts of different things that are wording issues or maybe someone read something wrong. So there's all sorts of different reasons why it might be this way. But uh, three of us said not sure and one of us said we agree with the following statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, if that was you and it was just a reading error, that's fine. Uh, but, but we need to look into that. Why would, we would all agree that God, God had no beginning, right? He's eternal. He's from before the world was created. But uh, the Son and the Spirit had no beginning either. Quote from uh, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God, like they said in the video, was hovering over the face of the waters. In John 1, I think they also mentioned this in the video, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, which is a very confusing way to say that everything was made through Him. Colossians 1 also speaks into this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, which doesn't mean he was born, but it's in the sense of him having the rights and responsibilities of a firstborn child. I'll explain a little bit in the the next verse. Um, But going on, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created. So that takes care of that. In heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. And then the next scripture, Hebrews 1. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. So that's that firstborn terminology coming into effect. He's an heir. That's the firstborn's uh, role. So he's an heir of all things, through whom... He also created the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, he goes on to say later in the verses. So God, and therefore the entire Trinity, was not created and has always existed. So none of the Trinity was born or created, but they also, God also cannot die by virtue of his immutability and by virtue of him being God. Later on in the same chapter of Hebrews, in an, or in an incredible expression of God's immutability and Godhood, uh, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 102. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. So here, the, the, David and the author of Hebrews calls to mind the fact that all creation is very changeable and it's going to expire. So what do, what do they say next? But you, Jesus, are the same and your years will have no end. So God, and therefore Jesus, is immutable in his life. Even as Jesus dies on the cross, hear this from Peter in Acts 2. 23 to 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because why? 
because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Now, we've been talking about what Jesus was doing uh, in the three days that he remained in the grave for the last few weeks, and we talked about it on Sunday, too. So feel free to talk about it more in your small groups and continue that discussion if, if you were uh, part of those ones as well. Um, but whatever he was doing for those three days, he did not cease to be God. The Trinity was not broken. God is immutable in his life. God is also immutable in his character. Next one. James writes in chapter 1, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what is James getting at here? In context, he's saying we shouldn't attribute temptations to God or evil to God because he is perfectly good. He's the Father of lights. And he's not subject to temptation. Or he's not subject to outside external forces coming in and swaying his uh, actions or his, his motives and his feelings. There's nothing outside him that can cause him to change away from his pure, good, benevolent perfection. He cannot and he will not become sinful or evil. But there is more to that than just that he can't become evil. Remember I said he also doesn't move horizontally in his perfections. In that sense, he doesn't have like this past character to compare with his current character. He doesn't cast a shadow on himself. It's, it's, uh, it's really strange. Um, but I think this, this text supports this idea. A.W. Tozer defines immutability this way. God never differs from himself. So imagine if God were some sort of 3D object, right? Kind of like they were showing in the video. The little uh, three blob thing that was passing through the 2D frame. And then, then imagine that blob changed and you could see both of them at the same time. If you, if you lined them up and shined a flashlight through the, the new one, it would cast a shadow on the previous one because he had changed. There would be a perceptible change. Change. There's all sorts of different ways that people have said that God has changed over time. But one of the most common ones, and the mo one of the most uh, sad ones actually too, is that people often say that God has changed in that he was more wrathful in the Old Testament, essentially a different God in the Old Testament, than he is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, God is love, and the Old Testament, God is wrathful. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, this is in Hebrews 1 again. Of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So right there we have the author who was saying that Jesus loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And those are both parts of his nature. And we already said that God has been loving, or been eternally, or Jesus has been God forever, even all the way back into eternity. So for all time, God has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And as a side note, 
God has always counted our faith to us as righteousness. You should read Galatians if that's new to you. Um, but he's done, he did that with Abraham, and he's done that with everyone since. He's saved us in the same way. Faith is, before God, righteousness because of Christ. But here's where I'm going with this. God has always been perfectly and totally wrathful and loving, both together. So I'll take you as a walk through the Old Testament and all the way through the new creation. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve every fruit but one, a beautiful example of grace. But the one came with a warning that on the day that they eat of it, they will die, which is a hypothetical wrath. So God was just this whole time, even though he didn't have someone to take out wrath on. But there is this possibility of disobedience that makes his wrath some sort of latent, existent thing. He's still wrathful, even though no one's disobeying him. But then they did eat it. And he was gracious to have them begin to die slowly instead of having them totally die completely on the day that they ate the fruit. The reason it's a grace is because part of the way he built them is to give birth to children And he promised that one of those children would one day crush the head of the serpent. In other words, he gave them the gospel and an opportunity to give birth to Christ. He was planning Jesus from day one. Then, last Sunday in church, um, I understand if you weren't there, this uh, will sound maybe a little bit strange, but we were in 1 Peter 3. We saw that Noah is very, very similar, his story, to our story. He was among a small few, eight people that believed in God. And God saved him and judged everyone else. Noah was saved by God as an act of grace from his wrath against the wicked. So Peter looks back at Noah and the flood as a gospel message. This is the same God. And then uh, Abraham Paul talks about him in in Galatians, and he explicitly says that God preached the gospel to Abraham. So this is back in Genesis 12. What was the gospel that God preached to Abraham? That his genealogy would lead to Christ, and through Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. All the families would be blessed. And he would be a blessing. But, even though that was an incredible act of grace towards Abraham, we also see in the same situation when Abraham tried to take that promise for himself in a presumptive way by trying to have a child with uh, one of his slaves instead of with his wife. God cursed that relationship, that the blessing would not come through Ishmael, but rather would come through Isaac when God provided the opportunity. So we have grace and love and also wrath. And then we finally get to Israel under the care of Moses. God brings them out of slavery, which is an image of the gospel, and he makes a covenant with them that if they trust and obey, they will be blessed, but if they hate God and disobey and they don't believe in his promises, they will be cursed. This is the old covenant. The people always chose the curse, which was the weakness of the old covenant. But They rebelled almost immediately, and God spared their lives instead of cursing them immediately. And when he did this, God said this, Exodus 34, 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So God was deadly serious about his grace and also about his wrath. Israel continued for about 700 years to do almost nothing but disobey and and not believe. So eventually God did come around and fulfill his promise to curse them for their disobedience. And he used Assyria and Babylon to essentially destroy the entire nation of Israel and Judah. But even amid all this, we hear from Isaiah in chapters 10 and 11 that he kept a remnant of faithful Jews alive promising to them a Messiah, which we now know to be Christ. Which brings us to the New Testament. So this is the time when we hear things like God is love. We, you know, everyone instinctively understands, okay, he's a loving God. But he's also a wrathful God. One of the first things that happened to the church in Acts 5, I believe, was Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, lied to the apostles. And this is like right on the heels of the Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, the people. And God immediately struck them dead when they were uh, called to account by Peter. It's almost as if God was making the point, I am still holy and I still have, I still hate wickedness. I still have wrath. And then jumping all the way forward to after Christ returns in eternity, God is still love which is to say he still loves righteousness and hates wickedness. While the saints, those who have been saved by Christ, joyfully rest in the presence of God for all eternity, Revelation 14.11 says, The smoke of the torment of the damned goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. God, even after everything is done, still loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He's been the same God from the very beginning to the very end. Moving on to the third way that God is uh, immutable. God is also immutable in his truth. He cannot lie, which means, and this is great for us, his promises always come to pass. This is from Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. I believe this is the next slide. Yeah. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore in himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, that's his faith in action, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that, by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. A sure and steady anchor of the soul regarding God's promises and his covenant with us. 
When we say things like God is faithful or that we can trust God, we're actually talking about his unchangeable word. God swore by two unchangeable things, his nature as God, who cannot lie, and an oath, essentially doubling that on itself. It's almost unnecessary, but he decided to show more convincingly to us, the heirs of the promise, that he will come through on his promise. That we would obtain the covenant blessing given to Abraham, the father of everyone who is saved by faith. It is impossible for God to lie. And the whole Bible is filled with his promises. And these are just a few. It is finished, John 19, 30. Jesus said on the cross, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31, this is the new covenant. That's for all Christians. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103.12 For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 2 Corinthians 4.18 You see what's going on there? He's saying in a promise that what we're hoping for is unseen. It's going to require us to trust God. Death is swallowed up in victory, 1 Corinthians 15, 54. One day, every single person in this room will be on some sort of deathbed. Will we be able to trust God that death is indeed swallowed up in victory? Well, since it is impossible for God to lie, we can. And then, he who testifies to these things, at the very end of the Bible... Second to last verse, surely I am coming soon. Amen. We can have utter confidence in our God to follow through on his precious and very great promises. God is also the fourth way that God is immutable. He is immutable in his purposes and his ways, or his will, in another way to say it. This is from Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. So it's not only God's word that is true and unchangeable, but also his private or revealed will. God's will is fixed before the foundation of the world. Throughout scripture we can see it most clearly in election of the saints to salvation and on the crucial focal point of all history, the most horrifying act of violence and sin in all of history, the cross. If you want to see any of those verses, just search in some sort of uh, concordance or in the uh, just search before the foundation of the world or something like that uh, Bible and it'll come up with verse after verse after verse of God's 
deciding things prior to creation. But we can also see beyond just the cross and the way his predestination, his election works, we can see it in general as well. This is Psalm 33, 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So how can this be? Doesn't God have to respond to things that happen or react to things as they happen? Doesn't he have conversations with people in Scripture and sometimes change his mind or at least appear to? That's one of the questions for our discussion afterwards. Um, And I think the answer is, from our point of view, yeah. He does play ball, so to speak. He does respond to intercession. He responds to prayer. But from God's point of view, no. Once God makes a plan or has a will, which Scripture unanimously testifies that he did before he made any of us, the only way that it could be changed is, one, if he came across new information, or two, if he changed moods. So we're going to look at both of those more closely. So one, does God come across new information? Does that even happen? Can he learn things? So next week we're going to explore more depth. I believe the next topic is omniscience, which means that God is all-knowing. From our Isaiah verse, we see that he knows the end from the beginning. I guess for it would be beginning. Yeah, end over here for you guys. Beginning... This is what scripture means when it says that God foreknows something. We are stuck in the present. We're creatures created in the time, tick-tock, tick-tock. We're doing, we're cruising along through history one second per second. But God stands outside of or independent of time as its creator. He's the one who created it. So as William Lane Craig puts it, he's a philosopher guy, Christian guy. Um, he's pretty biblical, I'd, I don't know if I could recommend everything that he does totally, but he, he, he's a good thinker. He's very helpful. Uh, being the author of time, God knows tensed facts. Tensed facts. Like past tense, present tense, future tense. He can talk to us about what he will do for us in time. He can talk to us about what he is doing for us in time. And he can also talk to us about things that he will do for us in time. But he has already known that moment. And he can speak in utter confidence about that which he will bring to pass. So, God can never learn something that would cause him to change his plan of action that he decided before the foundation of the world. So the second question, does God change moods? Is he moody? And that's a pretty like uh, pejorative term, like moody, like a teenager. But it, it, the, the, the bigger question is, does God kind of live predominantly in one emotion at this point in time and then another emotion, another t- and he, does he act out of those emotions? So this brings up another related attribute of God. It's kind of underneath this immutability. It's called his impassibility. Impassibility essentially means not subject to passions, at least not the way we are. God is not pushed and pulled around by single emotions that drive his decisions in one moment and then another emotion drives his decision in a different moment. He's not subject to that push and pull from outside himself. He's never overcome with an emotion which leads him uh, to divert from the path that he had decided before he created the world. 
And we should be very thankful that this is the case. Thankful that he is not overtaken by what should be, from our point of view, his most extreme emotions, such as his anger. Psalm 711 says that God is angry every day and that he hates, uh, not in Psalm 7, but that he hates sin. We should be thankful that he's not grieved so much, such as when he dealt wrath against his one and only son, that he quits his plan before all is finished. This isn't to say that God is emotionless, that he has no emotions. He just isn't driven by passions that change from moment to moment. To borrow a phrase from A.W. Tozer, which we'll hear more from in a moment, he is, and this is an awesome phrase, to just perfectly gets it, he is boundlessly enthusiastic about everything he does. The totality of his being is involved in everything he does. He does not shift his emotions in and out of existence as needed. He is God, and he is God always. But wait a second, you say, what about all the times in the Old Testament when it says that God repented or relented? A few of those scriptures are in your uh, questions at the bottom of your sheet. What about prayer? What about when Jesus was filled with compassion? Any, any of the other examples of God having certain types of emotions, and then scripture says he acted out of those types of things. We can discuss that more in small groups, but for the sake of time, I'll give Tozer the final word on this aspect of unchangeableness. This is a really good thing, and it gets at actually most of the things that we've touched on so far. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart. Uh, next, Next slide, please. Thank you. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours, nor does he set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, at this moment, he feels toward his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. God never changes moods or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. His attitude towards sin is now the same as it was when he drove out the sinful man from the eastward garden. And his attitude toward the sinner is the same as when he stretched out his hands and cried, Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God will not compromise, and he need not be coaxed. He cannot be persuaded to alter his word, nor talked into answering selfish prayer. In all our efforts to find God, to please him, to commune with him, we should remember that all change must be on our part. I am the Lord, I change not, he's quoting from Malachi. We have but to meet his clearly stated terms, bring, in, bring our lives into accord with his revealed will, and his infinite power will become instantly operative toward us in the manner set forth through the gospel in the scriptures of truth. Excellent word. Notice the enthusiasm that never dwindles. 
and the fact that his power coming to us to help us is in accordance with the nature that he reveals through his scriptures. So on to the fifth and final way that God is immutable. He is immutable in his Son and his Spirit, which is to say his Trinity. God's immutability is utterly tied up in the Trinity. You cannot have an immutable God if he is not more than one person. To test this, I'm going to ask you some questions. Who did God love before he had created anything to love? Did he need to wait for the creation of man in order to start loving? How about this? With whom did God communicate before he created someone to say something to? Who was there? One more. Who honored God for his glory and his goodness and his justice before humans existed to see it? It seems to me that nearly, nearly all of the mysteries of the universe and questions of, you know, those edge cases of philosophy and logic and everything that has to do with theology is accounted for, if not explained, <laughs> because of the complexity of the Trinity, like they said in the video. It is mind-boggling, and we're not necessarily meant to understand it so much as um, get in there <laughs> and know him personally. But that being said, the Trinity, I think, at the end of the day, solves nearly all of our problems with where things came from and all the issues of logic and, and the questions that we have about the ultimate things of everything, the mysteries. The Trinity is the doctrine which most sets God apart from mankind and sets our God apart from every other God in the world. For God to change, it would make him a creature and not God. So follow me on this one. If God could change, it would make him not God. What are the ways he could change? He could act out of need. If he needs something, that makes him a contingent being. He relies on something else, something to give him what he can't have. That makes him in a certain sense, finite and imperfect in his being. If he's subject to passions, if he's moody, like I said earlier, he's influenced by something outside of himself that would cause certain emotions to take hold and his actions to rise out of those emotions. If he acts according to his passions and his passions fluctuate from day to day according to the, the news, essentially, that makes him beholden and relying upon creation for how he should feel and act. Who then is God? If he can change his will after he established it before the foundation of the world, that would mean that he 
is learning new information. He's responding to something. There's something he didn't know and something somebody else had decided. Something that could teach God. Something outside of God, which necessarily would have had to have created him. In other words, if God can change, he is a creature. And change in the ways that I've described, in his truth, in his purposes and ways, in his his attributes and his perfections. Not that he can act. He acts in time, certainly. But we can also, also see, to drive the point home further, that God couldn't have been eternally loving or completely satisfied in himself, which is to say, not needy at all, if he were not triune. And that was the purpose of the questions I was asking. If God is triune, this means that a God which is not triune cannot possibly be a good capital G God. Because that God would have had to change in order to relate to the world it created. God did not have to change in order to relate to this world. He was completely satisfied in himself and has not changed even in his creation. He was able to enjoy his own glory before creation. John 17:5 says at the end of or at the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer before he gives himself on the cross, he prays to his father, "And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence." This is so interesting. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When Jesus returns to his Father's throne, he is go- he's looking forward to enjoying the same satisfaction after his sacrifice as before anything had been created. Presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God enjoyed his own glory within the Trinity before he put it on display in creation. He does display his glory in creation. But he enjoyed it perfectly before that too. He has always enjoyed perfect justice within the Trinity. Even without disobedience, he was able to enjoy the, uh, the perfect obedience. He was able to reward righteousness and holiness and godliness within the Trinity. He was able to love righteousness and hate wickedness even before wickedness existed. In the absence of evil, there was no need to demonstrate wrath or even mercy, but his justice and loving kindness were satisfying in himself before he created mankind. And it's the photonegative, the breaking of his law that causes, it's the same coin, different side, his wrath, and then his love, the mercy. But, thankfully for us, according to his his unchangeable will, his love and grace and justice overflowed into creative acts. Not as a necessary means of fulfillment, but as a free desire to show his attributes to more people. And perhaps, as Paul suggests in Romans 9, to show, and quote, make known his power and wrath and mercy. Not so that he could have those attributes, but to show them off to more people. And these all serve the glory, which we have already seen was complete and satisfying to him before the foundation of the world. This is quoting from the Romans 9 passage. In order to make known the riches of his glory for who? He's making known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 23. For his glory, he prepared beforehand vessels of mercy so that he can show them, show us his glory in terms of his power, wrath, and mercy. This show was for us to see. But even so, God did not need our eyes in order to create. He is by nature creator. He is by nature a fountain of goodness, a skilled artist, an engineer, overflowing and designing and building. It was him who created the seed, a tiny speck that when buried, explodes from the earth into a tree, which will produce fruit. And then it will produce more seeds, and it will do that more exponentially. He's multiplying and reproducing life exponentially increasing. It was also him who created mankind in his image, male and female, who in love and community produce new life after new life, fathers and sons after his image. And then they build cities and they dwell together in community. And God didn't quit creating when he rested on the seventh day. He still breathes life into babies as they're conceived, he still makes new creations in Christ's blood when we believe in him, and he will make the new heavens and the new earth. Our God by nature is a creator. And finally, if almost all the hardest questions are answered by the Trinity, the rest are either generated or answered by the Son in his two natures in one. One person, two natures, fully God and fully man. God is immutable in his son as well. So if he is immutable, what's going on in the incarnation? How did he become a human or how did he die? That's a really important question. The answer is that God took on flesh. Still God taking on flesh. Instead of subtracting or emptying himself of his godhood, he added humanity to himself. In his humanity, Jesus grew up and he went through puberty. He learned what it was to have to obey against the uh, pressures of temptation. And he died and rose and is our high priest because of those things. But his humanity was added without confusing, without changing or annulling or muddling either of his two natures. God the Son is still God the Son as he takes on humanity. In his, all of his humanity, none of Jesus' godly attributes was changed. It's still impossible for him to stay dead. So he rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Most High, interceding for us. It was impossible for him to change his character, so he perfectly kept all of his Father's commands and lived the righteous life that is now accredited to us. And at God's right hand, he pleads our case based on his own righteousness. It is impossible for him to lie. And therefore, his promises stand true and we can expect him to return and bring us to the Father. And it is impossible for him to change his purposes and his ways. So we know for a fact that he will continue to be for us and that he will return. And if he continues to be for us, who can be against us? So, in final summation, we see that the doctrine of God's immutability is central to his own deity. And God's immutability is also central to our ability to trust him and to have life. 
I want to close with Malachi 3.6, as God puts it. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for teaching us about yourself and your word and for being a sure and steady anchor of the soul that we can trust you and your promises, that you will not be like Solomon or David, good, powerful kings who eventually change and sin and die and are no longer our king. You are forever, you are eternal, and you cannot remain dead. And you are risen, Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. And so we have complete confidence to come to you. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by these things, that we would be able to trust you even when things get very, very hard, knowing that you are a bulwark in times of trouble, that you will not change. And therefore, since you have promised to be for us, that you have given us your son, you have made a covenant with us to take away our sins and remember them no more. We can trust you and have freedom in life. In your name we pray. Amen.